Section 29 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 52. London, September 27th, Old Style, 1748. Dear boy, I have received your Latin lecture upon war, which, though it is not exactly the same Latin that Caesar, Cicero, Horace, Virgil, and Ovid spoke, is, however, as good Latin as the erudite Germans speak or write. I have always observed that the most learned people, that is, those who have read the most Latin, write the worst, and that distinguishes the Latin of gentleman scholar from that of pedant. A gentleman has, probably, read no other Latin than that of the Augustan age, and therefore can write no other, whereas the pedant has read much more bad Latin than good, and consequently writes so too. He looks upon the best classical books as books for schoolboys, and consequently below him, but pours over fragments of obscure authors, treasures up the obsolete words which he meets with there, and uses them upon all occasions to show his reading at the expense of his judgment. Plautus is his favorite author, not for the sake of the wit and the vis comica of his comedies, but upon account of the many obsolete words, and the cant of low characters, which are to be met with nowhere else. He will rather use Ulli than Illy, Optume than Optima, and any bad word rather than any good one, provided he can but prove that, strictly speaking, it is Latin, that is, that it was written by a Roman. By this rule, I might write now to you in the language of Chaucer or Spencer, and assert that I wrote English, because it was English in their days. But I should be a most affected puppy if I did so, and you would not understand three words of my letter. All these, and such like offended peculiarities, are the characteristics of learned coxcombs and pedants, and are carefully avoided by all men of sense. I dipped accidentally the other day into Petiscus's preface to his lexicon, where I found a word that puzzled me, and which I did not remember ever to have met with before. It is the adverb prefiscine, which means, in a good hour, an expression which, by the superstition of it, appears to be low and vulgar. I looked for it, and at last I found that it is once or twice made use of in Plautus, upon the strength of which this learned pedant thrusts it into his preface. Whenever you write Latin, remember that every word or phrase which you make use of, but cannot find in Caesar, Cicero, Livy, Horace, Virgil, and Ovid, is bad, illiberal Latin, though it may have been written by a Roman. I must now say something as to the matter of the lecture, in which I confess there is one doctrine laid down that surprises me. It is this, Quam vero hostis, sit lenta, sitive, morte omnia dira nobis, minitans, quacunca, bellantibus negotium est, param sane interferit quo modo, iam abrere et, interficere satagamus, si ferociam exure concutur, ergo veneto quoca uti fas est, etc., whereas I cannot conceive that the use of poison can, upon any account, come within the lawful means of self-defence. Force may, without doubt, be justly repelled by force, but not by treachery and fraud, for I do not call the stratagems of war, such as ambuscades, masked batteries, false attacks, etc., frauds or treachery. They are mutually to be expected and guarded against, but poisoned arrows, poisoned waters, or poison administered to your enemy, which can only be done by treachery, I have always heard, read, and thought, to be unlawful and infamous means of defence, be your danger ever so great. But, si furociam excur concutur, must I rather die than poison this enemy? 
Yes, certainly. Much rather die than do a base or criminal action. Nor can I be sure beforehand that this enemy may not, in the last moment, ferociam exur. But the public lawyers now seem to me to warp the law, in order to authorize, then to check, those unlawful proceedings of princes and states, which by being become common appear less criminal, though custom can never alter the nature of good and ill. Pray let no quibbles of lawyers, no refinements of causists, to break into the plain notions of right and wrong, which every man's right reason and plain common sense suggest to him. To do as you would be done by is the plain, sure, and undisputed rule of morality and justice. Stick to that, and be convinced that whatever breaks into it in any degree, however speciously it may be turned, and however puzzling it may be to answer it, is, notwithstanding, false in itself, unjust, and criminal. I do not know a crime in the world which is not by the causists among the Jesuits, especially the twenty-four collected, I think, by Escobar, allowed in some or many cases not to be criminal. The principles first laid down by them are often specious, the reasonings plausible, but the conclusion always a lie. For it is contrary to that evident and undeniable rule of justice which I have mentioned above, of not doing to any one which you would not have him do to you. But, however, these refined pieces of casuistry and sophistry, being very convenient and welcome to people's passions and appetites, they gladly accept the indulgence, without desiring to detect the fallacy or the reasoning, and indeed many, I might say most people, are not able to do it, which makes the publication of such quibblings and refinements the more pernicious. I am no skilful causist nor subtle disputant, and yet I would undertake to justify and qualify the profession of a highwayman, step by step, and so plausibly, as to make many ignorant people embrace the profession, as an innocent, if not even a laudable one, and puzzle people of some degree of knowledge, to answer me point by point. I have seen a book, entitled Quidibit a Quillicbit, or The Art of Making Anything Out of Anything, which is not so difficult as it would seem, if once one quits certain plain truths, obvious in gross to every understanding, in order to run after the ingenious refinements of warm imaginations and speculative reasonings. Dr. Berkeley, Bishop of Cloyne, a very worthy, ingenious, and learned man, has written a book, to prove there is no such thing as matter, and that nothing exists but in idea, that you and I only fancy ourselves eating, drinking, and sleeping, you at Leipzig and I at London, that we think we have flesh and blood, arms, legs, etc., but that we are only spirit. His arguments are, strictly speaking, unanswerable, but yet I am so far from being convinced by them, that I am determined to go on to eat and drink, and walk and ride, in order to keep that matter, which I so mistakenly imagine my body at present to consist of, in as good a plight as possible. Common sense, which in truth very uncommon, is the best sense I know of. Abide by it. It will counsel you best. Read and hear, for your amusement, ingenious systems, nice questions subtly agitated, with all the refinements that warm imaginations suggest but consider them only as exercitations for the mind, and turn always to settle with common sense. I stumbled the other day at a bookseller's upon Comte Gabalis, in two very little volumes, which I had formerly read. I read it over again, and with fresh astonishment. Most of the extravagances are taken from the Jewish rabbins, who broached those wild notions, and delivered them in the unintelligible jargon which the Kabbalists and Rosicrucians deal in to this day. 
Their number is, I believe, much lessened, but there are still some, and I myself have known two, who studied and firmly believed in that mystical nonsense. What extravagancy is man not capable of entertaining, when once his shackled reason is led in triumph by fancy and prejudice? The ancient alchemists give very much into this stuff, by which they thought they should discover the philosopher's stone, and some of the most celebrated empirics employed it in the pursuit of the universal medicine. Paracelsus, a bold empiric and wild cabalist, asserted that he had discovered it, and called it his alkahest. Why or wherefore, God knows, only that those madmen call nothing by an intelligible name. You may easily get this book from The Hague. Read it, for it will both divert and astonish you, and at the same time teach you nil adamerari, a very necessary lesson. Your letters, except when upon a given subject, are exceedingly laconic, and neither answer my desires nor the purpose of letters, which should be familiar conversations between absent friends. As I desire to live with you upon the footing of an intimate friend, and not of a parent, I could wish that your letters gave me more particular accounts of yourself, and of your lesser transactions. When you write to me, suppose yourself conversing freely with me by the fireside. In that case, you would naturally mention the incidents of the day, as where you had been, who you had seen, what you thought of them, etc. Do this in your letters. Acquaint me sometimes with your studies, sometimes with your diversions. Tell me of any new persons and characters that you meet with in company, and add your own observations upon them. In short, let me see more of you in your letters. How do you go on with Lord Pulteney, and how does he go on at Leipzig? Has he learning? Has he parts? Has he application? Is he good or ill-natured? In short, what is he? At least, what do you think of him? You may tell me without reserve, for I promise you secrecy. You are now of an age that I am desirous to begin a confidential correspondence with you, and as I shall, on my part, write you very freely my opinion upon men and things, which I should often be very unwilling that anybody but you and Mr. Hart should see, so, on your part, if you write me without reserve, you may depend upon my invaluable secrecy. If you have ever looked into the letters of Madame de Sévigne to her daughter, Madame de Grignon, you must have observed the ease, freedom, and friendship of that correspondence, and yet I hope and I believe that they did not love one another better than we do. Tell me what books you are now reading, either by way of study or amusement, how you pass your evenings when at home, and where you pass them when abroad. I know that you sometimes go to Madame Valentine's assembly. What do you do there? Do you play, or sup, or is it only la belle conversation? Do you mind your dancing while your dancing-master is with you? As you will be often under the necessity of dancing a minuet, I would have you dance it very well. Remember that the graceful motion of the arms, the giving of your hand, and the putting on and pulling off of your hat genteelly, are the material parts of a gentleman's dancing. But the greatest advantage of dancing well is, that it necessarily teaches you to present yourself, to sit, stand, and walk genteelly all of which are of real importance to a man of fashion. I should wish that you were polished before you go to Berlin, where, as you will be in a great deal of good company, I would have you have the right manners for it. It is a very considerable article to have le ton de la bonne compagnie, in your destination particularly. The principal business of a foreign minister is, to get into the secrets, and to know all les allures of the court at which he resides. This he can never bring about, but by such a pleasing address, such engaging manners, and such an insinuating behavior, as may make him sought for, 
and in some measure domestic, in the best company and the best families of the place. He will then indeed be well informed of all that passes, either by the confidences made him, or by the carelessness of people in his company, who are accustomed to look upon him as one of them, and consequently are not upon their guard before him. For a minister who only goes to the court he resides at, in form, to ask an audience of the prince, or the minister upon whom his last instructions, puts them upon their guard, and will never know anything more than what they have a mind that he should know. Here women may be put to some use. A king's mistress, or a minister's wife or mistress, may give great and useful informations, and are very apt to do it, being proud to show that they have been trusted. But then, in this case, the height of that sort of address, which strikes women, is requisite. I mean that easy politeness, genteel and graceful address, and that exterior brillant, which they cannot withstand. There is a sort of men, so like women, that they are to be taken just in the same way. I mean those who are commonly called fine men, who swarm at all courts, who have little reflection and less knowledge, but who, by their good breeding, and trentrant of the world, are admitted into all companies, and by the impudence or carelessness of their superiors, pick up secrets worth knowing, which are easily got out of them by proper address. Adieu. End of section 29. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.